This is an EM Pulse Heartbeat with your host, Sarah Medeiros. Welcome back to EM Pulse. I can hardly believe it is December already. So for our final heartbeat of the year, we have a special treat. This episode is hosted by the one and only Dr. John Rose. Dr. Rose is a professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis, and you might remember him from our episode Operation Deep Freeze when we interviewed him about his time in the South Pole. If you missed that episode, definitely go back and check it out. It was published June 3rd, 2019. So we're so excited to have John back on EM Pulse, and it is extra exciting because he's interviewing Dr. Jennifer Law. Dr. Law is a graduate of our UC Davis EM residency, and she now specializes in aerospace medicine. She and John actually worked together at Amundsen-Scott Station in Antarctica a few years ago, and her career path and experiences are fascinating. But I'll let John and Jen tell the story. A big thanks to both of them for coming on the podcast. Hi, this is John Rose, and I'm uh, co-hosting here, I guess, with EM Pulse. So I'm uh, the EMS specialist here at UC Davis, and I kind of like that kind of you know austere wilderness, those kind of things. But I've, since I was a kid, I was a space nerd. And years ago, more than a decade ago, I think when Jen graduated from residency, I found out she not only was a space person, but she actually did a lot of this. Jen, thank you so much for coming on EM Pulse and letting us interview you. I'm very happy to be here. Glad we could make this work. I do remember when, when we first met, when you were a brand new resident, that you had worked at, I, I believe it was JPL, and you were working on a Mars rover. And, but can you give the, your background a little bit? Yeah, so speaking of space nerds, uh, I am definitely one of the biggest ones uh, out there. I pretty much got bit by the space bug early on in my life uh, in middle school. And so ever since then, I knew I wanted to work for the space program. I uh, went to MIT. I studied electrical engineering, actually, because I thought I was going to be an engineer. And kind of along the way, I did some internships at NASA and realized that I didn't exactly want to be an engineer. So I kind of found out about space medicine through a summer program that I did at NASA, and I just thought that was the coolest thing. So my senior year of college, instead of taking fun classes, I took pre-med classes. So that was not so fun. What I ended up doing was, uh, because I was kind of late to the game, I uh, went to work uh, full-time uh, at JPL after college while I applied to medical school. I worked on the Mars Exploration Rovers Project at JPL, worked on uh, Spirit and Opportunity. That's another uh, name for the project. And um, it was a really cool experience. I got to spend uh, six months at uh, Kennedy Space Center in Florida, getting the rovers ready for launch, and then saw both launches and then kind of came back to California and started med school at USC. I knew I was going to kind of go down the path of aerospace medicine, um, but at the time, it was kind of a leap of faith, actually. But, well, you have to be a clinician first, right? You need to know how to take care of patients. And so I chose emergency medicine because that was kind of uh, what interested me. And, and that was how I ended up at UC Davis and got to meet you and all the great folks there. I have really fond memories of us having 
awkward space conversations where I, you know, I would always think that I knew something or I, and suddenly I was talking to you realizing, oh, you're the real (laughs) deal. Now, JPL, which stands for Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, that's where the non-manned missions are one of the places where those kind of satellites are put up. Is that correct? Am I correct? Yeah, that's correct. So NASA has multiple centers and each one kind of has a its own specialty. So JPL specializes in robotic missions outside of Earth, I guess. So it definitely was a great place to be for me as a space nerd. You know, it's funny because there's always a little bit of a robotic versus human missions debate in in kind of the space program. But I always see it as not either or, but both. I mean, there are certain things that robotic missions can do that human missions can't do and vice versa. So, you know, the two really should coexist. A lot of us in emergency medicine and a lot of, and if there's med students or residents listening to this, I know a lot of them are interested in kind of austere experiences, which obviously space represents probably one of the uh, most daunting of that. But you chose University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston, which is in Houston, so by Johnson Space Center. And I would presume you chose that as your aerospace medicine fellowship because it was near NASA. But can you talk about that and a little bit about what you did during your fellowship? So it works like a fellowship, like you said, you have to do something else beforehand. But unlike, say, some of the the fellowship programs in emergency medicine, you don't have to come from emergency medicine. You could come from internal medicine, family medicine, and whatnot. It also falls within the um, preventive medicine umbrella. So we actually get board certified by the American Board of Preventive Medicine. Uh, So the first year, you actually get a Master of Public Health. Uh, But then the second year was our practicum year. So we did a lot of different rotations. I spent most of my year that year uh, at the Johnson Space Center, but I also had the opportunity, for example, to uh, go to uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, and I got my Air Force flight surgeon uh, wings there. I also spent some time at the FAA, um, also did a commercial space rotation. So really, it was a great way to kind of see different parts of space medicine at work. And different people would choose kind of different specialties, if you will, or subspecialties. So, I mean, I've, I've focused on space medicine for obvious reasons, but other people might decide to go to the FAA and work uh, there or work in the military and or research. So there's actually a lot of different opportunities, even within uh, a very small field like space, aerospace medicine. And from that, your career really kind of got going because after your fellowship, you were hired by NASA at that point to be a NASA flight surgeon. Correct. Yeah. And so you were a, a flight surgeon for NASA. I think you had three or four ISS, you know, International Space Station missions where you had crews that you were assigned to. And um, can you just talk about that experience being with uh, NASA and, you know, right out of fellowship? Yeah, yeah. So when you first get hired, uh, there's probably about a year of training that you have to undergo before you get your quote-unquote flight surgeon wings. During that time, you're learning how the system works. Um, you're learning to work in mission control, for example. And that requires a lot of um, training. Um, at the same time, you kind of get thrown into different projects um, and kind of support different programs as the space medicine expert. So like you said, I worked three ISS missions. When you first start out, you work as a deputy crew surgeon. So you essentially help the prime crew surgeon 
with the, your assigned crew. And what that means is we are their doctor uh, for the entirety from pre-flight, in-flight to post-flight. And so for pre-flight, we would help them get medically certified to fly to the International Space Station. Um, we would help prepare their medical kit, um, you know, what meds would they need uh, while they're in space and also what they could possibly need uh, in case something happens, right? Because it's not like you just go down to the local pharmacy if something happens. So you kind of have to think ahead and kind of anticipate potential needs. And we also help with the training because most astronauts are not medical. Um, so some of them do get some medical training. Um, so we help with that. But also we're in the process, we're trying to get to know the crew member and them getting to know us so that they learn to trust us. So that's the pre-flight part. And then the prime crew surgeon will go with the crew into quarantine about two weeks before they launch. And then obviously we would be there for the launch and then we support them in flight. So in the first few days, it's pretty dynamic because they're adapting to microgravity. And then we would have regular private medical conferences, PMCs, to kind of see how they're doing, uh, you know, take care of any issues that might come up. And also just, again, focusing on prevention, uh, kind of anticipating what might be uh, a problem and kind of nipping things in the bud, so to speak. Um, and then obviously, if something happens, then, you know, we would, would take care of it. And so, you know, we monitor them for spacewalks, EVAs, and also they would do kind of periodic health assessments just to make sure they're staying healthy. So, you know, we keep track of all that as well as the kind of daily timeline that they have to follow. There's very specific rules about how much exercise they get, you know, how much sleep they get, um, that kind of thing. So the idea is, you know, especially if they're up there for six months or even longer, um, we want to make sure they are doing all the right things to, to stay healthy. And then when it's time or almost time for them to come back, uh, we do some preparations, helping them with countermeasures against uh, orthostatic hypertension and neurovestibular symptoms, that kind of thing, um, when they come back. And then, of course, we're there for their landing. And then when they return, we are helping them with any kind of post-flight evaluations and also uh, reconditioning. So that's kind of, you know, crew surgeon 101 or crew surgeon in a nutshell. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. That is really a lot you have to keep track of. In general, when you were at your time at NASA, what was kind of the coolest or craziest or whatever story you thought was like the neatest thing for you during that period that you, you know, really remember? You know, it's not one particular experience, but it's really the bond we get to make with the crew. Because, I mean, like you said, most people just see astronauts as these famous people almost. They fly to space and you don't know really what happens kind of behind the scenes. But obviously we're there uh, behind the scenes and helping them kind of make their mission a success. So, you know, you kind of form this bond that is uh, pretty special. So, I mean, even to this day, uh, a lot of my friends are astronauts and, you know, we're always talking about, hey, remember that time when we were in Star City or, you know, when we went to St. Petersburg or something? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely something that, you know, most people never get to see, but it, it's always going to be a special place in my heart. The other thing I, I found really interesting, I think our audience may, was when we talked about um, actually some of the things that happened to the astronaut. So one of the concepts that I didn't wasn't really even thought about until you explained it to me was the concept of the pre-breathe before 
a spacewalk? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, so right now, you know, the air we breathe is 70% nitrogen, 21% oxygen. So if you are just going from what we call normal barrack environments, so kind of normal pressure right now, and going to a reduced um, pressure environment, um, if you didn't pre-breathe all that nitrogen, you know, it's like when you go scuba diving, you know, you could get the bends. And so the pre-breathe process before a spacewalk is basically to allow the body to get rid of all that nitrogen before you go out the door. There's definitely been kind of an evolution of pre-breathe protocols. It used to be back in the shuttle days, actually, what they would do it was a campout protocol where they would literally camp out in the airlock overnight. But now the latest iteration is called uh, IO protocol. I think it's called in-suit light exercise protocol. And so the idea is you combine some light exercise with the pre-breathing and that kind of expedites the process. So, you know, in the movies you see, they just get in their suit and just jump out the airlock. I mean, that doesn't happen in real life. You have to pre-breathe. So um, obviously you have to do that. You don't want crew members to get the bends, but at the same time, every hour it takes to do the pre-breathe, you know, that's time that they can't do something else. So right now it's about a four-hour um, protocol, but that's what you kind of have to do before you go out the door. Yeah, that was incredible. It takes four hours to get ready before you can be exposed to that lower pressure. It's just, it, that was fascinating. The other thing that was I found fascinating is when you talked about, like, if there was a tear or a runny nose or a little bit of water and it was within the spacesuit during the spacewalk. Can you talk about the concerns with that? Yeah. So because in microgravity, you don't have gravity. If you had some water on your face, it would just kind of pool on your face. And imagine if that water was covering your, your nose or mouth. And actually, we had a situation happen a few years ago when one of the uh, astronauts was doing a spacewalk. So there was basically a leak in the suit and it caused uh, water to accumulate in the helmet. And so it was actually pretty dicey. And, you know, had he not been able to get back inside, he probably would have died out there. Towards the end, he couldn't even communicate because there was just water all over his face. It was definitely a close call. So now there's different procedures and added equipment to deal with that eventuality. But it's, it's certainly a concern every time someone goes out the door. What other kind of things? I know they talk about, you know, your eyes and optic nerves. What other kind of interesting physiologic changes can you talk about? Yeah, so you, you talk about the eyes. So it's called SANS, uh, Space-Associated Neuroocular Syndrome. This is something that was discovered, I want to say, within the last decade or so. Essentially, we have started seeing changes in the retina and optic nerve of um, astronauts on long-duration spaceflight. And it's actually pretty pervasive. We still don't know exactly what the cause is. There's different theories out there, everything from elevated intracranial pressure to fluid shift causing all these changes. But it's concerning because in some of the astronauts that have come back, some of these changes have persisted well after their mission. So... We need to understand what causes it, of course, but also how to mitigate it. Another emerging problem is DVTs, actually. So, you know, if you think about Virchow's triad, space kind of gives you two of the three already, right? You have stasis and 
sometimes hypercoagulability. And so a few years ago, we uh, discovered that one of the astronauts developed a DVT in the uh, internal juggler. And obviously that's concerning because there's the potential of embolization. But also when you think about it, how do you treat DVTs? Are you anticoagulate? Well, it's fine when you're in space, but they're going to have to come home at some point. And landing in a vehicle, especially if it's a Soyuz uh, vehicle, gives you a lot of Gs. And, you know, it's been likened to a car crash. And so you definitely don't want someone anticoagulated to be getting into a car crash intentionally. So there's definitely a lot of weighing of risks and benefits. And when you stop the anticoagulation, that's definitely uh, something that has caught everybody's attention. But I think more importantly, um, you know, given the, the SANS problem, the DVT problem, I mean, how long have we been flying people in space, right? And, you know, and now we're just finding out about these things, partly because we're spending more and more time in space. And that's what the International Space Station is for. You know, this is kind of a test bed for us uh, before we go and spend even longer periods uh, in deep space. But can you imagine going on a Mars mission and discovering some brand new medical condition that you didn't prepare for and, you know, it's too far to send out any medications or intervention. So that that's kind of the concern for us. You know, it's like, what problems haven't we, you know, discovered yet and what could really bite us uh, in the future? Well, that's a great point. And I know that you and I have had discussions about um, on longer flights like for Mars and there's things that are just aren't even human physiology. As uh, you pointed out before, we don't even know if Earth-based terrestrial plants can grow upright when there's less gravity and actually live. There's a lot of interesting questions that way. This last year, 15,000 people applied to be in the astronaut program. Uh, you applied and you got to be in the top 100, whatever they call that. And they pick 100 people out of 15,000 to go ahead and, and enter the interview. Needless to say, it was a, um, an impressive achievement to get to that final 100. Oh, thank you. I mean, it was quite an honor. So I think it was 12,000 people. Yeah, but so a lot of people. And yeah, it was pretty cool to make it to the, the first round of interviews, which I think it was 120 people. But I just wanted to see how far I could get. Uh, but I always knew the, the odds were uh, <laughs> against me, if you will. But it was a great ride while it lasted. And now I could pursue other opportunities. Can you kind of comment what you're doing now and what you find kind of exciting? Yeah, so, you know, it's kind of <laughs> an accident how I uh, kind of came to what I'm doing now. So after I left NASA, I hit all seven continents in 12 months, but I specifically wanted to experience remote medicine. So, I mean, that's, that was part of the reason why I went to Antarctica and kind of ended up working with you again there. But after that, um, I had different opportunities come up to help out as a flight surgeon, uh, since, you know, there aren't too many experienced uh, operational flight surgeons out there. So I've been doing some consulting. I consulted uh, with Axiom for about a year, but now I work for other companies. And right now, actually, I'm getting ready to support space adventures. So they are uh, sending two Japanese spaceflight participants up to the International Space Station on the uh, Soyuz vehicle. And so I am the crew surgeon for that. And so actually in less than two weeks, I'm going to be going to Russia and then Baikonur to support their mission. So yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's always good to be in demand. I get to kind of use my experience at NASA to help uh, different commercial 
space companies bringing people up to space. And, you know, you talked about commercial space being very exciting. And yeah, for sure. I mean, this is a great time to be in the field. I mean, when you think about it, for the past decade, we've had maybe 12 people, 12 astronauts a year getting to go up to space. And so far in 2021, commercial companies have already sent that number of private citizens up to space. And I hear Blue Origin might be sending up six more in December, and then you got the two that I'm supporting in December. So I could only imagine the tempo will pick up. Even more exciting, I think, kind of from a medical knowledge and, and science standpoint, is that, I mean, when you think about it, up to until now, we've only flown the healthiest people, right? Astronauts are very uh, highly selected, um, highly screened um, people from a medical standpoint. And so for the first time, we're going to be sending up people that, you know, may not be as healthy or, you know, they might be on the older side. I mean, just look at William Shatner, who went up uh, not that long ago. He's 90. You know, we're almost going to have to learn new things that we never knew before because, I mean, up till now, we haven't had to deal with, for example, diabetics or people with various chronic conditions going into space. And how do we make sure they have a great time up there, but also not getting into any trouble, like medically speaking. So it, it's definitely a really exciting time uh, to to be in this area. And I'm kind of hoping <laughs> for personal reasons that maybe one of them will need an experienced flight surgeon to go with them. So, uh, you know, you never know. <laughs> Your opportunity to get up there, I'm sure, is there with as connected as you are with much of this. It is a very exciting time for all of this. I, I, you know, for me individually, I've, you know, and I think for a lot of our listeners, space is super fascinating. You've taught me so many things over the years about this and some of the nuances that I would have never, ever considered. And we're certainly proud of you from UC Davis that you're able to participate um, in all of these adventures and to share it back. So, is there any parting words you want to have for our audience there, Jen, before we? close it out. First of all, thank you for your kind words. Um, I've been really lucky and I've had some really good mentors along the way, yourself included. So I'll always be grateful for the support I got from the program at UC Davis and just, you know, from the people that I've worked with. I think the exciting thing about commercial space is that over time, uh, I think the cost of launch is going to come down significantly. And who knows? I mean, maybe in 20, 30 years, we'll be able to go up there and, you know, instead of Antarctica, we'll be in space together. I mean, how cool would that be? That would be very cool. I would, I would love to do that. I don't think that's going to happen in my time, but I'd love to watch my uh, colleagues go up and, uh, but you know, I'm excited for all the younger people who listen to this podcast, who want to get interested in space and understanding aerospace medicine and, and routes to kind of get involved in it. And I think your story is a wonderful story of how to, you know, stay with your dream. Don't let your dream go. You can, you can have it. Thank you so much, Dr. Jennifer Law. We really appreciate taking time on Ian Pulse to uh, share your stories about space and aerospace and what it's like to be through that whole component of your training. And we really want to thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks. Happy to be here and glad we uh, could make this work. <laughs>